I found that writing was something I enjoyed and what I was actually good at. So I guess it's important to find not something that you think you want to do, but something that you are good at and enjoy. Because uh, I think unless you're good at something, it's very hard to be happy doing it. And you don't necessarily know what you're good at. I, I found that by accident. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Interviews. How should you approach them if you're writing a non-fiction book? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. So I've spent a lot of time over the years interviewing, well, guests for this podcast, for example, but also when I was a freelance journalist, I used to interview CEOs of companies, founders, and creators for local newspapers, radio stations, and so on. Interviews can seem like they're pretty easy. You just turn up, open up your voice recorder, or fire up your Zoom connection, hit record, and ask them a few questions. But it can take almost as long to prepare for an interview in advance, particularly if you don't know what the topic is about. So when I'm getting ready for an interview, I like to you know, read some work by the author in question. I also like to write down a list of five or 10 questions related to the key ideas in the work. Check out what they're saying or doing on social media, read up about their background and see where else they've been featured. Now, sometimes if you're particularly knowledgeable about a topic, you probably don't need to take or go to this level of research because you can just go dive straight into the subject matter. That said, I always find it helpful if you figure out an angle for your interview in advance because it can give it strong structure. I also like writing interviews because they are helpful for adding a little bit of credibility and a third party voice to nonfiction. So if you're writing a nonfiction book about a particular topic, rather than simply regurgitating information and using personal stories, both of which are useful, helpful, and informative for readers, consider adding a little bit of credibility by interviewing a third party expert in your niche or niche, because often that can give a different point of view which the readers can find informative. Now, one book that's made a, or one series of books that's made a big impact on me over the years is the Market Wizards series by Jack Schwager. He profiles day traders, investors, and various types of financial entrepreneurs who've made money in the markets. Now, I don't trade, I don't day trade, but I particularly like these books because it's a good insight into a different type of career to an everyday job. And I also saw some commonalities between writers who spend a lot of time alone in a room writing and day traders who can do the same except in front of their terminals or computer screens. But I also like these series of books because of how Jack uses interviews to craft a compelling argument inside of his chapters in the book. The Market Wizard series extends over five books and he spent 30 years working on this particular series. So when I caught up with Jack, I wanted to hear all about how he gets ready to interview day traders and investors and people who found success in the markets. I also wanted to hear how Jack had sustained his interest in a topic of over 30 years, because I can only imagine how difficult it is to find new angles and new ways to talk about the same ideas or the same topics. And that's one question I put to Jack in this week's interview. I hope you enjoyed my catch up with Jack all about his Market Wizards series of books. Do check them out, even if you're not interested in day trading, because there's great advice about risk management and, well, I suppose starting your own business and going out on your own, which is helpful for creatives too who are considering quitting their day job. Also consider checking out the books because they're a great read. If you did enjoy this week's interview with Jack, please consider leaving a short review on iTunes because your reviews will help more listeners and readers hopefully find the show and potentially buy some of the Become a Writer Today books, which helps support the growth of the podcast. 
Also, please consider sharing the show with another writer on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Now, let's go over to this week's interview with Jack Schweiger. Welcome to the show, Jack. Hey, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. So, Jack, I love interviewing uh, entrepreneurs who have covered different niches or niches and really dove into a topic and helped explain it to everyday, an everyday audience. So your books are all about day trading. And I'm not, I, was, I was talking to you before we started. I'm not a day trader, but I learned a lot about risk management, which is helpful for running a business. Before we get into any of that, could you give listeners a flavor for, for who you are and what you do? You know, very sort of career-wise, I spend most of my work in my career as far as employment goes as a research director in, in, for major brokerage firms on the derivatives future side. Last 20 years or so, I've sort of been independent, either working as a consultant or and, and all that time writing books. So that's kind of a brief background. And, and oh, Brian, I would correct one thing. The books really aren't, I wouldn't call them about day traders. There were some people who were day traders, but a lot of them were much longer term. So it was really a mix of, uh, on a time horizon, it was really quite a mix going anywhere from from literally day trading to holding positions for years. The first book was published in the mid-80s, is that right? Yeah, the first Market Wizards, my first book, uh, which was an analytical book, was published in 84. My, the first Market Wizards book came out in 89. In the book, for people who haven't read it, you interview uh, different types of investors, traders, speculators, hedge fund managers at length, and then you, you kind of turn their interviews into lessons and takeaways fairly detailed advice for readers. Where did you get the idea from? Gee, I don't know. I don't know where I originally had the idea. I, at the time, I was uh, involved in markets myself as a as a research director and was trading in, on my own, but I was a pretty terrible trader. And I thought it was, it was a good excuse to try to pick the minds of the best traders, you know, in, in the country. And so I thought it'd be a fun project. And I did it kind of for selfish reasons i wanted to become better myself and so i think i kill kill two birds with one stone and, and that's that that was basically the genesis of the idea so i write a lot of non-fiction and i i love interviewing people from different subject matters it's quite easy to reach out to people today because of twitter and email and social media so you can find these people quite easily i imagine it was a bit more difficult when you wrote the first book yeah i had a bit of luck there so i knew in fact maybe to answer your prior question, one of the motivations was I did know some traders who literally were the best traders probably in the world. And that was, that gave me a Now, how did I know that? Successful people don't appreciate generally how much of their success is due to luck. So I believe, you know, in most cases, in any successful person, yes, they had some ability, but they also had some fortune go their way. Now, in my case, I happen... The first job I got on Wall Street, or the first job I got altogether, first permanent job out of grad school, was an analyst position. The person leaving that position was a fellow by the name of Michael Marcus. And he was cleaning out his desk. I was coming in the first day. We chatted a little bit. He was going, he was leaving to become, quote, a trader. He was leaving his analyst position to become a trader. He stayed in New York for a few years and we used to get together because we met at that point. And so we, we got together for lunch every couple of weeks for a while. And so I knew him. He went on then to join a firm called Commodities Corp, which has changed a lot since the early days. Back then, it was one of the first prop trading shops. And he, I think he was their best trader ever. They gave him literally, I think, some small amount of money. I don't think it was 100000 or 20000 but it wasn't really a lot of money. But he eventually built it up into $80 million. And that was with them taking money out every year 
for expenses. So I knew him. He then, uh, while he was in Commodities Corp, hired Bruce Kovner, who became one of the world's most famous traders. Caxton, he founded Caxton Capital, which managed at some point probably tens of billions. And I knew him because through Marcus. So I knew a couple of these traders directly. Part of it was really luck. So, and through them, I also got traders I knew, gave me recommendations to other traders. And I did some research and came up with the, the subjects of the first book. And when you were approaching subjects that you had a relationship with, with Michael Marcus, uh, did you find other subjects were agreeable to an interview or were they reticent or reluctant? So I was pretty lucky. I think in that first book, just about everybody agreed, including people like Kovner, who Marcus, I think, using those two people as an example, I don't think they ever gave an interview to anyone else ever. And in Kovner's case, he made it almost an emblem of honor that he wouldn't give interviews to anybody. So first thing he said to me when, when I you know, came into his office, he said, you're probably wondering why I agreed to talk to you. And he, he basically told I didn't ask him. He told me. He said, there's so much stuff appearing about me in the press, which is not correct. I think I give one interview on the record that I, you know, he trusted me that I would do and I'd be honest. I would try to blindside him or whatever. And, and, and that's true. I was basically just trying to get to the truth. I wasn't trying to catch anybody. I was just trying to convey the people as best as I could. And he sort of trusted me to give an honest, since he knew me, to provide an honest portrayal. And so that's how I got that interview. And, you know, there were, Marty Schwartz gave me an interview, said, I think his case, he wanted his parents to see the interview. So there were all different motivations, but I, I was pretty lucky that I got these people to give me interviews. Has that been the same today? For like, for example, with your your latest Market Wizards book, Unknown Market Wizards, where, where the interviewees also open to talking about their successes? For the most part, there was some hesitancy in some cases. These the people in this latest book, pretty much, I mean, by definition, under the radar. I mean, there was a whole point. Nobody knows who they are. And he talked about some guy trading just on his own and, you know, not putting out any, you know, no, no Twitter accounts, no, no managing money, just, just billions, just making millions trading their own account every year. So not really any motivation aside for them to, to agree, but they, in most cases, by this, at this point, almost all, and this sounds conceited to say, but it is true. Everybody I ask for an interview, just about, not only knows who I am, but they've read my books. And in many cases, my books were the inspiration for their getting into the markets. So they almost have, uh, they almost feel an obligation because, you know, I was the catalyst to get them into this business, which proved successful for them. That they'll, plus, I guess also, hey, you know, the guy, this is the guy that, that I, you know, first learned from. So, so they agreed to do, to, to do the books. Now, of course, when I say learn, that's probably a bad word because they're like a thousand times better at trading than I am. But at least they got the insights that I got from other traders. I was, I was kind of the, the conveyor of, of that information. So you spent approximately 25 years writing Market Wizards books. How have you sustained your interest in the topic? Like that, That's quite a long time to go and pick one topic and really go deep. Yeah, it's actually over 30 years. And, 30 years. <laughs> so how do I sustain interest? Two things. One, the markets are always changing. So the whole atmosphere, the whole environment, the stories change. And the people are different. And I'm trying not only to convey what makes these people successful or how they've made money in the markets with consistency, but I also try to capture a little bit of their voice, their personality. 
And they range. They range tremendously. They go from very shy to very, very brash. And then they can go from extreme left to extreme right politically. And they're just all different. And so insofar as people are different and every interview is different, it's, that's, not been a prob- that's not been a problem. And I have an interest in the markets and that hasn't changed. And there have been, like I say, you talk about changes in the market. We know we've gone from a, my first market wizards book, the people who made their fortunes then did it pre-PC. And we go from a world where before PCs to a world now where you have supercomputers, everybody has a powerful PC, tremendous amount of data available to anybody. You have hedge funds with 100 math and physics quants working on the markets. So you go on to a completely different world. And, and that, that itself also helps keep the interest. Mm, that's something that, that struck me in the book when I was reading about trading in the 80s, <laughs> how, how different it, it was being back then with completely different tools and no social media. And I think one of your interviewees in the latest book actually uses uh, metrics from social media to inform his trades, which was quite striking. Yeah, and that was really unusual, Chris Camillo. And this is how, no matter how much experience you have, it's you never know what you don't know. So you know, I've been in the market since the early beginning of the 70s. So it's we're quite you know, 50 years or whatever. And I, until I did this latest book, my thinking was there, well, you could use fundamental analysis, which people are not familiar, basically just economic statistics, numbers like that, whether it's macro numbers about the, the economies of the world or it's individual company earnings and stuff like that. Or you could use technical analysis, which is the price movement, whether it's chart analysis or systematic analysis based on prices. And I thought those were the two worlds. I mean, you could use either fundamentals or technical or as many traders I interviewed combined the two. But what else is there? And amazingly, in this book, I found that one of the traders doesn't use fundamentals, doesn't use technical. And as you indicated, he uses social media. And this is something that never occurred to me that you could actually trade on nothing but social media, which is what he essentially does. And has been very successful doing that. Just basically trying to see, for example, uh, maybe to make it clearer if we throw out an example, something like LaCroix, the National Beverage Corporation is the, the company. So he noticed uh, by following, he developed these systems, uh, pro program systems where he could see when chatter on, let's say, Twitter was was increasing about some particular subject. So he would see all this chatter now all about LaCroix, which was basically just a flavored seltzer. And so he, he kind of bought that because he saw this happening. And this, this showed up way before it showed up in the earnings of the company. So he's like ahead of everybody else. And it was those type of insights he got from, from social media that he used to trade. And to me, that was kind of eye-opening that there was another world beyond what I conceived. So you said that the key idea of the latest book is to profile unknown market wizards, so people who wouldn't be known in the trading community. But when you're coming up with an angle for your book, is, is it something you come up with or does your publisher approach you and say, Jack, we'd really love to hear about X? Oh, no, no. I, I, basically, I basically come up with the idea and then I go to, go to a publisher with it. I be, and I usually write the book before I even bother. Since after the first couple of books, I knew that anything I write, I could get published. So I didn't have to, I didn't usually, I normally would want to have the book more or less, you know, well underway before I'd even bother going, you know, going to a publisher. Uh, and I didn't, and I have an agent, so my agent would do that. 
No, so I come up with the ideas and I try to make it a little bit different. The book before the previous book I'd done on with this interview summary format was uh, hedge fund market wizards. So, hey, what's the first I can get away from hedge fund market wizards is people trading in, in their own office and nobody knows about them. So it, it was a complete kind of change from the last book, in other words. Well, another thing that struck me in the book is the level of preparation uh, that goes into your interviews and how long the interviews are. I, I can only imagine how much time you spend going through the transcripts. But could you describe like how you prepare for, for an interview with, with a... Yeah, I don't do a lot of preparation, actually, before the interview. The, the work, maybe one or two percent, but, you know, well, a few percent of the work is just preparing who I'm going to interview a little bit about them. A few percent, maybe the actual interview, planning the travel. Most of it actually comes in the extracting all the interviews, like, you know, the information I get on the interviews into the book. That's where the, the bulk of the work is. And it's not, I mean, I think people probably have a wrong concept of how it works. The, as you mentioned, the interviews can be very long. In some cases, uh, I've spent two days with, you know, doing interviews, uh, so they, they can range sometimes on the very short end, maybe one or two hours to the very long end to be maybe 12 to 15 hours. Now, 12 to 15 hours, it's a longer interview. If you're talking about 12 to 15 hours of, of recorded interview, that would be, forget hundreds of pages by itself, probably a thousand pages plus. So do you have to really go through that and extract what is the essence of what is the interesting stuff? What is the good stuff? So that's where the work is, is just, Sitting there, listening to the recording, oh, I'll take this, I'll take that, and then putting it into a, a readable format. And often, often there's also a lot of shuffling involved because the same subject may come in, you know, hour two, hour seven, and hour nine. And it's, you don't, if you if you kind of do it that way, it's very disjointed. We speak in in ways that don't translate well into readability. So to go from a verbal format which has run-on sentences and complete thoughts and all that, to a nice readable format, takes a lot of work. So you try to use the exact words as far as you can, but you basically have to do a lot of editing and sometimes finish sentences because you knew what they were going to say, but they trailed off and start another sentence and things like that and put it in in some sort of order. So that's kind of what the process is like. Uh, and then it's just a matter of multiple drafts until you get it into a smooth, readable form. Are you working with a researcher or a transcriptionist who helps you collate the interviews? No, you know, my very first, in the very beginning, I did I did recordings and had somebody type them all up. And I remember they were sitting on some interviews, like with 100 or 200 pages for the interview, and then going through each page and circling the sections where it might have something that I wanted to do, and then putting them into different sections of categories. You know, that, so that was the process I did early on. But, you know, once recording and, you know, computers, you know, PCs became was more available, I then went to uh, just basically just l listening to the recording, just keeping whatever was good. And then when I had went through the whole recording and extracted everything I might want to keep, then I started working with that to edit it, to, to remove some stuff, to move things around and so forth. So, no, but I've, I've done it independently, not since the very first Mark of Wizards book did I have anybody actually typing up the interviews. Hmm. So does it take long to write a Mark of Wizards book or is, is it more getting the interviews and arranging the time and everyone's... The least amount of time is probably getting the interviews and doing the interviews. The, the bulk, like I say, 90% plus of the work in a book 
It's just this editing process. Yeah, people sometimes say, you know, hey, you're a really great interviewer. Um, I say, no, I'm not really. No, I'm not probably a mediocre interviewer, but I'm a really good editor. Because mm. I think if you took the transcripts themselves, they would be pretty dull. They would be pretty, pretty dull reading. And they would be not grammatically very accessible. Because none of us are very... It's rare that I get an interview, and I, this includes me on the, on the question side. I'm not, not one of these people either. But very rare do I get somebody who speaks so coherently that you can literally take what they say, boom, it's an exception. And I'm, okay, and I'm talking about many times brilliant people. We don't speak like we write, and uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, so some of your interviews tend to be quite longer in the books. I think in the, the latest book, the Richard Barge interview was a little bit longer than some of the other uh, people that you profiled. So what do you do when you're talking to somebody and they're a bit reticent with information or they're uncomfortable with the process? I'll give you a couple of examples here. I can think of, of a new market wizards. I had an interview where I would ask, you know, the first hour or two, there was just nothing. And I can tell when I'm doing the interview, I can tell. And, and this is, by the way, this is a uh, currency trader who's been trading for decades called Bill Lipschitz. And at the time, he was trading for Solomon Brothers, and he was literally trading where he, I don't know if he had just left Solomon Brothers or he was still with them, but he was literally trading billions of dollars, you know, that was his position size, which at that time was huge, huge. So he was reticent to kind of revealing information, and we talked for a couple of hours and nothing was going, and then he just was in the evening, suggested ordering like Chinese food or whatever, and then record, the record is off and we're eating, and then he starts opening up. <laughs> And so, but anyway, after that, we went on and I went back another time, but it turns out everything in that in, that's in that interview, nothing in the first couple of hours was, was usable. But after a while, you know, as he got more comfortable, I started getting lots and lots of useful material. In fact, that was the first, usually the first interview I put, not always, but usually the first interview is the one I kind of like the best uh, because I get the best stories or whatever. And he ended up being... It went from an interview, which I thought, oh, no, this is going to be like a dead bust, to one which ended up, in my opinion, the best interview in the book. But it took a while. And sometimes you can't, you can't get past it. Uh, there was one interview, I think, also in New Market Wizards, a fellow called Gary Bielfeld. Now, this is kind of interesting. At the time, I was a research director, and I would have to provide information to the firm, what's going on in the markets. And I kept on, like, in a bond market, I kept on noticing, you know, you'd see like Morgan Stanley or Solomon or these big was a buyer, you know, Solomon was a seller, uh, whatever. You get to all these big names as buyers and sellers. And then you see this BLH, you know, BLH was a buyer today lifting. And I said, who the hell is BLH? I find out BLH is one guy in Peoria. I say, that's a story, you know, how is this one guy in Peoria kind of moving thousands of bonds? And turns out this guy started out trading one or two corn contracts and just built and built and was very successful. But he was, in my mind, I, whenever I think of him, I think of Gary Cooper. He was just very stoic, very wouldn't talk. He couldn't get two words out of him. And it was a really tough interview. At one point in the interview, he says, there's a poker analogy, but he didn't want to put it on tape. I said, well, why don't you put it on tape? So well, I don't want to make it sound like that. Like finally, I got him to agree to put it on tape and got something out of him. You know, that was that was semi interesting. But that was the one chapter. First of all, it's the one of the shortest chapters that I, it may be the shortest chapter out of in any book. And half of that chapter is my narrative because there's so little of the interview that was usable. But the story was so phenomenal how this one guy 
grew to that size that I just had to put it in. But you, so it's not always you can't always uh, solve it if the if the subject is really a bad interview subject. There's only so much you can do. You touched on another interesting point about the poker story and how he he was reluctant to, for you to put it on tape. So do your interviewees like to see the transcripts beforehand and edit it for clarity or say, I need you to take this out, Jack? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, yes, they do. But I kind of did this proactively from the very beginning. Maybe in the beginning they asked and I got into the habit. But from the very early on, I started doing this proactively. The reason is this. I'm asking these people to kind of open up to trust me. And I don't want them self-censoring. So I always tell my interview subjects, look, I'm going to let you see the interview before it's published. And you will have the right not to let me use it. And sometimes I've actually had people send me a a one-page contract stating that in most cases they take me in my word. And I do that so so they're not self-censoring. And the other reason also I want to make sure I am trying... I do very heavy editing of the material, as we talked about, and I try to do it so so it stays in their voice and it's true to what they say and it's it's as accurate as can be. So I also want the confirmation from them saying, you know, in most cases, they don't have any changes. In, in some cases, they'll have minor changes, but that just confirms to me that I've done a good job capturing what they were saying. And to the extent that they don't necessarily know that in a lot of the text, it's not exactly the words. It's basically they're, what they were saying, but maybe cleaned up grammatically and, and switched around and so forth. You also write up a reflection or a kind of a summary of the interviewee's approaches to trading at the end of each chapter. Does that take long to prepare? No, I mean, that's just part of its editing, part of its writing. And there I'm trying to just get the, I go through, I, you know, as I go through the interview, I kind of jot down key points. And then at the end, I'm trying to summarize Basically, what is the essence of the interview? And it's not always obvious. Uh, interesting, people will say to me, sometimes people who've been in the markets for many years, they read the book and they get more experience and they go back and they read the book a few years later and, and they're amazed that they got stuff they totally missed the first time and they go back and they read it years later and they get other stuff. It's kind of funny in that way. The material sort of provides more information the more the person gets experience. And so when I'm doing those, the person who read the chapter, even those exact same texts, may have missed some of the points or not fully appreciated what some of the points are. So I try to, at least from my vantage point, say everything that I can draw out of that interview that I think is a useful lesson about how to trade and and so forth. Would you have any plans to cover some kind of new markets like cryptocurrencies in a future book? No, I kind of avoided crypto from the very beginning. And that's maybe I'm an old fogey, but I... I kind of, my gut feeling was that, and I'm no expert on crypto by any means. I know a lot less than most people, but I just felt it was, I had the distaste for it because I didn't think it was real. I thought it might be just one of these two of manias. I certainly felt comfortable saying that about a lot of these Me Too cryptocurrencies, you know, most of them. I, so I think I've, on previous interviews that have been said, I think most of these cryptocurrencies will go to zero. But as far as some of the big ones, Bitcoin, Ethereum, I wasn't sure, not only because they had grown up so much, but really because while I thought they were built on air, and to some extent, there was a use for them. Now, the use wasn't very admirable, but there was a use. And the use was basically they provided a way to do transactions that were either, if not, if either illegal or whatever, you know, transactions people didn't want anybody to know about, and that provided kind of a 
although I understand now it can be traceable, but it provided a, a way for people to try to get a, around recorded transactions. And since there was a use that it served, even though it's not a very very admirable use, but there was a use and where's a use, there might be values. I I was a little I didn't have an opinion whether Bitcoin, you know, whether Bitcoin would keep, you know, go to up to also Bitcoin, it has a scarcity in terms of there's only a maximum amount of Bitcoins that can exist. So that plus the potential use made it something that maybe might might be real and I wasn't sure. But I think most of it is not. And I think it and it's certainly the the NFT thing, I think, sort of seems ridiculous. And so I've been too skeptical about these being real markets, and I've kind of avoided them. And, you know, I don't have plans to go there. You wrote the last book during the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Do you have any plans to write another book, or are you going to take a break? I usually don't write. I usually take about a six or seven year break between books. I have to get to a point where I want to do want to do a book. And so, you know, to... There have been cases when I've done books, like when I did Hedgefund Market Wizards, I was working on another book, which was a different type of book, which were just purely, you know, not interviews, it was market sense and nonsense. It was a book where I was just kind of using my soapbox to talk about all the misconceptions people have about markets and trading and investment and so forth. So that was a different type of book. And those, I actually worked on those kind of simultaneously and then put one out and the other one out within, within a year or two. But that is the exception. Typically, I'll wait. I'll wait five, six, seven years, and just I have to get inspired to do another book. Mm-hmm. Jack, where can people find more information about you or your books? Final words. Um, basically, I don't know for my my case, I kind of left my Wall Street job uh, to kind of work from home twenty five years ago or so. Kind of as early into that trend, and it worked out for me. So. Uh, I guess my, my wife did push me in that direction. I probably wouldn't have had the guts to do it on my own, but it did work out. So, you know, maybe people who want to try to do something on their own, maybe it's worth giving it a try. It could work out very well. And uh, yeah, I, I'll tell you, I'll say this. Okay, I started out in this process thinking that I wanted to be a really good trader. And I discovered that, not, you know, I've learned from my own books how to at least be net profitable in trading, but I'm never, I've never been a good trader in my, in my assessment. And I learned I wasn't that wasn't really my skill. I did learn that, but I, I found that writing was something I enjoyed and what I was actually good at. So I guess it's important to find not something that you think you want to do, but something that you are good at and enjoy. Because uh, I think unless you're good at something, it's very hard to be happy doing it. And you don't necessarily know what you're good at. I, I found that by accident. I was pursuing one one type of goal, and I ended up, you know, by accident in a completely different type of career and content that way. Yeah, actually, that, I think that you've touched on why, why I, the books appeal to me. I mean, I'm not looking for specific day trading advice, but there's an origin story for each one of the interviewees that you also find fascinating because it's it's such a different career choice to what most people do. Yeah. So I meant to ask you, Jack, where where can people go if they want to keep up to date with your work or read your books? Where, where would you say? Yeah, just like, you know, I mean, easily, I have a I have a website, which I really don't do much with, it, you know, my own name, jackswager.com. So the books are all on there, but you can also go to Amazon and just put in my name or put in Market Wizards and everything will be there. Thank you, Jack. Okay, thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store or sharing the show on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you're listening. More reviews, more ratings and more shares will help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast. And did you know for just a couple of dollars a month, you could become a Patreon for the show? Visit patreon.com forward slash become a writer today or look for the support button in the show notes. Your support will help me record, produce and publish more episodes each month. And if you become a Patreon, I'll give you my writing books, discounts on writing software and on my writing courses. Thank you.